0: This is episode number five with Kirsten West, the culinary explorer in Mexico.
1: Welcome to the Premier Journal with our host, José Antonio Quero. José Antonio Quero has been a leader in the hospitality industry for the past 30 years. His knowledge and long experience in this field enables him to bring you the most influential experts in the Mexican tourism industry. Join us as we explore a wide range of subjects, from private luxury homes, art and design, crafts, music, gastronomy, and much more.
0: We're starting the series with our favorite town and my hometown. San Miguel de Allende, in the central Mexico state of Guanajuato. As the series progresses, we will introduce you to other luxury experiences around other magical destinations in Mexico. For this episode, I'm thrilled to present our culinary expert, Kirsten West. Hello,
2: Jose. I'm happy to be here.
0: Kirsten Wells, the culinary explorer, is an international chef and cook instructor. More than 25 years studying Mexican cuisine include traveling to different regions of the country. Her teachers were many wonderful Mexican home and professional cooks, as well as authorities of the cuisines such as Diana Kennedy and Rick Bayless, with whom she collaborated with for eight years. Her fascination with the culture of Mexico started at the age of 12 in history class, taught in her native Germany. On her first visit to Mexico, with the intention to explore the archaeological ruins, she unexpectedly fell in love with Mexican food. The rich offerings at the markets she visited surpassed anything she had ever seen with the realization that this most fascinating cuisine in the world had influenced the cuisines of Europe and Asia in a profound way. It became the passion and fascination of her for studies. I'm so excited to have you here and talk about culinary experiences in San Miguel de Allende and La Piña Azul, your cooking school. I'm very
2: happy to be here. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you.
0: Please tell us about you, well, Kristen.
2: Um, my, you want wanted to see my fascination with Mexican food. It actually started with Mexico in in um, when I was twelve years old in history class, and we learned about more of the culture of the Aztecs and the Mayan and the ruins, and um, it was very different from any other cultures that I've heard about, and so I was fascinated. And in 1970, I traveled for the first time to Mexico. And um, of course, I was going to go and look at the ruins and and the buildings and everything. But to my surprise, um, I also did end up going to the markets. And this is where I fell in love with Mexican food, because the markets just were unbelievable. I had never seen anything like it. And mind you we have wonderful markets in Europe and they're, they're great you know but this was so different and many fruits i didn't know what they were and then eventually i ended up also being able to eat some in the restaurants during my visit and i started loving the mexican people and the culture and that was it i always say it was love at first bite and wow. so so that was wow. that was how my love for mexico started it was Actually, not terribly planned, but a bit unexpected.
0: And what can you say that it was the, the the first thing in the market that it really surprised you? Any veggie, any fruit, something like that? Yeah, it
2: was. It was. I remember the fish department at the San Juan market in Mexico City, and at that time they had so many exotic fish with almost the rainbow colors. And some of my recent visits, unfortunately, they haven't had those kind of fish. But at the time that I went, you know, uh, 50 years ago, it, it was, it, it just, you know, bothered me to see that there were actually fish that had this brilliant blue and yellow and, you know, it, it, it's, and they were stacked high. So it was like a mountain of these fish. And the other thing was like other animals that had been slaughtered, but they were stacked high on the counters of like goats and pigs and everything with the skin on and everything. And that was something I hadn't seen before. And naturally, anybody that would have been squeamish would have not really been excited, but I was excited about it, <laughs> you know? I thought this was great. So,
0: so that, that's that was, a fascinating trip.
2: The San Juan market did it, you know? And I, I ended up going there regularly too.
0: Now, after going and visit the market, I'm sure you went and tried some of the food while you were staying in Mexico City. Yes, yes,
2: yes. Well, fortunately my travel companion at the time uh, was also into you know, going to the, to the food stalls, in the street market, I mean the street food, and in, including, uh, we splurged, we didn't have much money, but we splurged and went to the San Angel Inn and had enchiladas suiza.
0: Enchiladas. That was always my favorite. Yeah,
2: Enchiladas, we sat at the San Angel Inn. And that was kind of like the highlight, you know. Like I said, we didn't have much money and we splurged on this very high end um, dinner. And otherwise, we mostly ate off the street. Tortas. I fell in love with tortas. I thought they were the best ever. And to this day, tortas are still some of my favorite.
0: Okay, so let's just move into time. And tell us about you, how you became a professional uh, chef, and, and, and this fascination for for food and, and the, the culinary scene. Uh, when this began, or how this continued, I know where it begins in Mexico, but how this continued yeah. through the years.
2: Well, you know, um, when I grew up, times were not so fabulous, and uh, my parents were not present all the time, so I actually ended up cooking for my two younger sisters at the age of eight. And there was nobody to teach me, so I just had to figure it out. And this is how I have continued my cooking career. I've never gone to cooking school. I've just figured it out, so to speak, and then looked later to see what what other people were doing and learning from other people. And I I call it the the school of life. And um, it's probably the best school you can go to, I would say and so eventually I um as a as a, when I finished my education in Europe I emigrated to the U.S. to learn English you know like this is what a lot of young people do and um so for the longest time I was you know engulfed with a uh, with the American culture you know I wanted to be a, an American and I lived in San Francisco and as you know San Francisco has so many different cuisines and um in, in especially Chinese and I really like Chinese cuisine as well but eventually you know the Mexicans just kept my fascination and eventually um, when I moved to Los Angeles I became also aware of Diana Kennedy and I took a class from her in in California and somehow I thought she was fa- fascinating and when I saw an advertisement for a um, cooking tour to Mexico where she was one of the teachers including Patricia Quintana I thought I had to go and this is basically when I came to Mexico to learn how to cook with Diana Kennedy and then with Patricia Quintana and Maria Dolores uh, Maria Dolores as well and so and then of course we went to markets and that was it you know and from there on I was just totally fascinated with the Mexican cuisine and you know especially Diana Kennedy she's so enthusiastic about the Mexican cuisine and she's making an effort to also present the very true real Mexican cuisine and not what you would get in in the U.S. and after that vacation when I went back to um, Los Angeles where I lived at the time and I went to Mexican restaurants, I have to tell you, I was highly disappointed <laughs> this, was, this was not what I had in Mexico this didn't even taste like it and so but I continued you know my interest in in Mexican cuisine and um, I, I you know continue to find it very fascinating. The history is unbelievably rich and so eventually I became friends with Diana Kennedy and I went on several tours to her. Quinta in Cidad and ended up learning a lot more about Mexican cuisine. And eventually at one time in Los Angeles, I've sold my business. I had a catering business and it didn't take very long for Rick Bayless to show up and offer me a position in Chicago. And I guess he had heard that I have at this point already gathered a great deal of uh, information about Mexican cuisine. And he needed somebody to help him uh, with his television show and to finish the accompanying book to the show and um, I was a bit hesitant you know because I'm from Bavaria and we have horrible winters and I know that in Chicago they also have horrible winters but eventually the offer was too exciting and I moved to Chicago and stayed there for eight years and um, you know cooked as much Mexican food as you can possibly cook I uh, wrote um, With Bayless, we collaborate on three cookbooks. Each cookbook takes about two and a half years to write because um, Mr. Bayless is extremely thorough and we had to test and test and test. And that was my job. I was the test kitchen director. And sometimes we tested the same recipe three and four times until we had it just done right. And his motto was always, yeah, but it still doesn't taste like the senoras.
0: He He wanted a real flavor.
2: Yeah, no, he had collected a lot of recipes on his travels, um, you know, from from Mexican cooks, or he would ask people at the mercado or wherever, or taxi drivers. Taxi drivers are a great source of recipes, believe
0: it or not. That's interesting. I will never know.
2: No, I mean, every time I take a cab, and that people ask me what I do, and I say I'm a cocinera. And, I, and they ask me, you know, what cuisine? I say, well, Mexican. And, oh, I have this recipe for salsa. It is just <laughs> delicious. And they give you the whole recipe, you know. So basically, um, so yeah, it had to taste just like the senoras, okay. And that wasn't always that easy, you know, but it was, it was challenging.
0: So that is why it took at least two years to write the book and finish it until it was kind of like perfect to the level that he wants it.
2: yeah. Well, you have to realize all all his books were award winning, and the way you win awards is if if uh, you have recipes that give the person that cooks from them success you know and that and was if, you if, yeah if you if you use this uh, recipe out of Rick's cookbook, he guides you along with a lot of little pointers and so that you know exactly what, the, what it should look like, what consistency, and, you know, and, and that is probably what makes a, a recipe or a cookbook successful. And that was his big goal. He wanted to make sure that the people that would cook from his book also were happy and had successes and would continue using his books.
0: Of course. So in this adventure, after eight years that you were in Chicago, what happened next? Where'd you move to? Well,
2: I I got this phone call to one day from the woman that had organized the Mexican tours that I told you about that I was on, on first, you know, with Diana Kennedy and everything. And she said, I have this woman here and she is looking for somebody to come to San Miguel de Allende and, and basically, run a cooking school. Is it okay if I give her your name? Well, was it okay to give her my name? Of course, you know. (laughs) So she gave her her my name, and um, we had a very nice conversation, and shortly after I came to San Miguel there, Allende. I had never been before. And so, and I interviewed with the company, uh, with the, the Orient Express Hotels, who owned at the time the cooking school, and, um, they, I have to say they hired me on the spot and I kind of had to tell them, well, you know, I've got to sound, talk to my accountant if this is all okay. And 16 days later, I was in San Miguel.
0: That was fast. In,
2: that was fast. Yeah. I did it as fast as I could because they were desperately waiting for somebody to come. And so, uh, so I took over the cooking school and, um, I ran that for a year and a half and I invited all of my friends that I, as guest chefs that I could, anything from Rick Bayless to Diana Kennedy to Patricia Quintana to Enrique Olvera, I mean, you know, all of them. And, and it, it, it was the best of time. But um, somehow, um, you know, I, with the corporation it's sometimes difficult to explain to them what a cooking school is all about. They were hotel people. And so eventually I realized I spent more time on, on figures and books than on cooking, and I really, you, know, wanted to cook. So I ended up uh, taking another off of where they just really wanted me to cook. And then, of course, we had in 2008, we had the economic downturn, yes. And uh, here in, in San Miguel, we had the swine food, and that pretty much shut down everything. And once it was reopened and the cooking school that I had worked for was gone, so I just started freelancing. And what I did is I um, went with the houses that were for rent and I advertised my services there. And so people that came on vacation, uh, they could then hire me to come to the house and, and teach them how to cook. And that, I did that for several years and it went really well until I felt I really needed to have my own cooking school. I needed what they call a brick and mortar place with my own equipment and and my own cazuelas and whatever else I wanted to have for cooking. And so this is when I ended up opening up La Pina Azul.
0: So basically, you came to San Miguel, you moved here, 16 days later, you are based in San Miguel, running and up in that cooking school. And then about a year and a half or two years later, you decide to go freelancing. And, and this yeah. adventure of doing that, like going to different houses, as, you know, I've been having on the show, um, some other guests like Catherine Hevers from the premier San Miguel company. So people, when they come and rent a the house, they like to have a different experience. You brought that right. experience over to those houses. How, 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 what can you tell us about this?
2: Well, um, the people were always very enthusiastic and they loved the fact that they could have it, you know, quote, in their temporary home and they could save the leftovers for later. (laughs) But on on my end as a professional, uh, it was a bit difficult at times because not all the kitchens were super well equipped. And so I was kind of like... You know, traveling around with my own battery de cuisine, as they call it. And <laughs> it was very tiring, you know, because um, as you might know, there are no level houses in San Miguel. There ended a lot of they stairs. All have stairs. Stairs or hillsides. And so I eventually, and also, you know, I got busy and I eventually thought it'd be really nice if I had a cooking school where people came to me and that's eventually what happened. I opened up La Piña Azul and it had a wonderful start. We did really well until, you know, a year and a half ago.
0: Okay, let's let's learn about La Piña Azul. First of all, I want to ask you why you name it La Piña Azul. That sounds fascinating, the name, but I'm sure there is a story behind that.
2: Yeah. Um, you know, the pineapple is the symbol of hospitality and you see it in many places uh, on banisters for staircases and everything uh, as carved pineapple, you know, and, and it, it's an indigenous fruit. And when um, Columbus arrived in the islands, uh, the indigenous people handed him a peanut, I mean a peanut, sorry, a pineapple, as, as a signal of, of hospitality, you know. And um, so I wanted the, the, the pineapple to be part of, of my name because it says Hospital- hospitality, you are invited, I'm hosting you. But it, the piña just sounded sort of a little bit blah. And so I remembered going to Mitra Khan or to Urapan uh, to the big crafts fair that they have there once a year. And I remember seeing beautiful blue um, clay pineapples. And so I thought, well, why not call it La Piña Azul? It sounded more like a name and it sort of stuck. And I really, I still like it. You know, my first gift as for the opening was a friend of mine got me a, a blue pineapple from, from Urapan. So that's that's the story. That's, that's the, the story lovely. behind
0: that. So you move from going over to the houses, to those beautiful houses, and pretty much uh, teach them at the house and also cook for, for for guests. And now you move that into turn it into school. How this works for you? Sorry? How this the, the cooking school has been working for you, of course, prior to the pandemic. Is it something that you do like to open public or is by reservation? How, how you run the school?
2: Um, you know, a, a lot of it is really like a, a referrals. I, I'm very lucky that I had beautiful comments on TripAdvisor from, from former students, which always helps, you know, and I had uh, students that were so enthusiastic about my classes that they referred me to other people. And so it was really, uh, and I have a website, you know, which also helps. And I would also post um, notices on, on Facebook and on, on my own website. And so it was sort of like, you know, referrals and, and a little bit of, of advertisement, but not really much. And I, had a, I have a postcard with all the information that I would put out in, uh, in bed and breakfast places, you know, places where I felt, people might be interested in cooking schools and the bed and breakfast people were very nice to display them. So that's how, but it, it actually escalated rather quickly, you know, and I think because my classes are a little bit different, I weave in a lot of history and I think this is what has been missing for other people. They have, they, they know about maybe some Mexican food and some bestsellers, you know, like mole and, guacamole and salsa, but they don't really know much of the history behind. And so I tie that in with a, I have a visual presentation uh, so that they can also look at some slides. And I think the combination of the two really you know, caught people's attention and as being something different. When people would say goodbye when the class was over, I think that was the comment that I got the most was how they had no idea about this and about that, you know, like the, a simple example is like, for instance, the pine, I mean the, the um, and peanut, the peanut, you know, and when I told them that peanuts, you know, are from Peru, and how now peanuts are all, you know, eaten all over the world, and it's like the third largest crop in the world, they were like, we, we thought they came from Africa, you know, <laughs> and it didn't, you know. I And I explained to them why, because peanuts were already grown in in Africa, uh, you know, before the Congress came. And eventually, you know, when they, the slave trade started, they, they had peanuts on board coming from Africa. And that was one of the first crops that they planted in the southern part of the U.S. And so I guess people kind of just assumed because it came with the slaves that it came from Africa. And so when I tell people, no, 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 the peanut is from Peru, it just changes the whole balance of this peanut, you know. So it's it's a, those are the kind of informations that I like to, to talk to people about because um, they have been having misinformation a lot of times. And, and, and the other thing, which, of course, is the biggest news is that uh, 10 years ago or now it's more like 12 years ago Mexican cuisine became part of UNESCO yes and I wanted the, to ask uh, you
0: about that because I think yeah, it, not it, a lot of people know
2: no, this. No. and usually when I when I bring that up in class it's I bring that up pretty much in the beginning I see people's faces kind of light up and I think what I do with this information I elevate the whole level and the of the class you know all of a sudden it's like this is something to be taken seriously you know we're not talking enchiladas and tacos anymore we're talking about a world's cuisine
0: can, can and, you tell and, us about what is this different from other places in the world like uh, give us an example why this is as a cuisine and it not as as, uh, as a as a food like, you mean the unesco yes yeah, the unesco yeah. design yeah. mexican mexican cuisine
2: right if you if you you know if you look into what came from from this continent and influenced other parts of the world you realize there aren't that many cuisines that are kind of pure to their origin you know like i mean you couldn't you couldn't do that with an italian cuisine because they're so inundated with tomatoes and tomatoes are from here.
0: From Mexico. You know? right. so,
2: yeah. So so they, they you know, they, they can't, they don't have their own cuisine because they already incorporate so many foods from other w- parts of the world. And um, it, I always tell people, like, people ask, why not Chinese? And I always say, well, I
0: have I was going Chinese to ask friends. you the same question.
2: <laughs> Chinese, yeah. I, I, um, I have Chinese friends. I had them in, in Los Angeles and they would cook these original Chinese dishes for me. And one soup that they really liked uh, had corn in it, it had chili in it, and it had tomatoes in it. And there you go. All three items are indigenous to this continent. There were no chilies anywhere in the world, not even in India, nowhere, until this continent was discovered, And, and especially Mexico, and so, that's already something that people go, not even like Sichuan. No, no. All the chillers in the world came from here.
0: From Mexico. And so that's
2: from, yeah, and, you know, not exclusively from Mexico, but, you know, from, this, from continent, this continent. Mostly South America and Central America. Not so much from North America, you know. So, basically, um, people just are in total disbelief. When I say no, not even in India, and you know how Indian food is so known for its chili and
0: yeah, and the and spices everything. and all that.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, came from here. Of course, immediately every country that any vegetable went to, of uh, the the local farmers or the local gardeners ended up kind of breeding their own varieties. And one of the example I talk about is like when we have the little round squashes here fresh the calabacitas yes you know they're the size of a they're the size of a tennis ball i always say this little tennis ball you know (laughs) went to italy and had a session with mr amani and came back as a zucchini
0: so So they changed to zucchini not the calabacita
2: it's the same it's the same it came from the same vegetable it's just that they started breeding it they wanted a bit more long and and looking like a cucumber yes and so and and they named it zucchini you know so but it's original is is from the calabacita from the from the squash you know and all squashes came from from here so like it's amazing that the foods that came from you know the americas totally amazing and and i keep finding new things you know it's it never ends and so that's what fascinates me,
0: you know. Well, I'm fascinated with all this conversation because I'm having a master class of history of food, the connection with Mexico, some of these things that probably not many people know. At least I didn't know this about uh, the tomato. And I'm sure there must be some yeah. other fruits. Uh, the one that you were sharing with me, pitaya, can you, can you just describe very brief about that pitaya fruit?
2: Yeah, yeah, the dragon fruit. Okay, there's a fruit in Thailand that is very, very popular and it's called dragon fruit. And you might have seen it, you know, it looks a little bit like it could be an egg of a dragon, you know? <laughs> yes, and it's,
0: very it has, it
2: has, Yeah, it has different colors. Uh, mostly it's kind of like pink and then the inside can be white or red. And it, uh, it's something that... the in, the, the, in India or, or the Far East people you know, became very enamored with when, when it eventually came from Mexico via the Manila galleons. They came from Acapulco into Manila and then eventually spread out. And I, I have had a, a students here from Thailand and when I told them that the dragon fruit was not from Thailand that it was an indigenous fruit from Mexico, and that it was called pitaya. They were very disappointed. I'm sure. What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> so, so yeah, and it's, you know, a lot of, of foods came uh, via the, man, uh, what they call manila, manila galleons, or the Nao de China, from Acapulco, which has a beautiful natural harbor, and they the big galleons, they sailed across the ocean into Manila and also India and China and they would sail twice a year and they did this for 250 years. Wow. And so you can imagine for 250 years there was a big exchange going on because they also brought things back. Like all the talavera is very Chinese influence, no? That is now so big specifically in Puebla. Silk and other you know, uh, items would come from China. And the one that m- most people think is, is uh, indigenous is the tamarindo that came from the other end of the world. And it's not. <laughs> and yet, you know, like there's hardly a country in the world that loves tamarindo as much as, as, as uh, Mexicans do, you know, with the chamoy and
0: what have you. Yes. So, sweet uh, and sour. There was a,
2: yeah. It was, it was a, and an, a, you know, for 250 years, it was a very active and uh, exchange of cultures, and um, you know, and and that's what makes the cuisine in the end so interesting. You know, that it's a, it's a mixture. It's a mixture. And all yes. all the citrus came, you know, all the citrus foods came from from uh, they originally from come from China. So there were no limes in Mexico, and that's another thing when I tell Mexicans that no limes are not from here. They go, what do you mean? Then we are and disappointed me. because yes, we because like to put lime have... to everything. Everything, yeah. So, so you know, it's it was a wonderful exchange. I think I'm glad that they sailed for 250 years, you know, to bring things back and back forth. Back and
0: forth. <laughs> now, moving back and forth, I have another question for you. Okay. Which will be your favorite Mexican food?
2: Um... The one that I just ate. (laughs) No, it's difficult, you know, because there are so many levels. Um, I always tell people like the crowning of dish of Mexican food is is a mole you know? Mole. And there is no no French sauce that can measure up to mole, you know, and I'm not the only one that says that, you know, Anthony Bourdain said that already in one of his interviews, that it is such a complex uh, sauce And there's nothing like it in in the French cuisine. And I love, you know, making moles. And when I was in Rick's test kitchen, I was like sort of given the job of testing just about any mole that he wanted to test. And I loved it, I loved it. So you were making a lot of
0: combinations with the different moles?
2: Yes, yes. I, I, you know, from different, every state in Mexico has their own mole, you know. And so basically um, you have to be um, organized because there are many components to it and you have to be calm and you have to pay attention. I mean, it's something that takes your total concentration, you know, and it can take a whole day to make, if not more. And and there's not that many foods other than baking. Maybe there are things in baking that can take a lot of time, but uh, for sauce, you know, I know all of the French sauces, and they're, they're very skillful, but none of them are as intricate and as involved and time-consuming
0: than,
2: um, than the mole, yeah. So, but, but you know, you don't make mole every day, and when you make mole, you usually make a huge amount because it has to be worth your time and effort to make it. So it's usually like a holiday dish when you invite people over for dinner.
0: Yes, and to celebrate also, something. To
2: yeah, you serve it very generously. You know, when I had my, my catering business in Los Angeles and I was sometimes serving mole, I always had to run around and tell the servers, more sauce, more sauce, because, you know, it's the mole is the main attraction of the dish, you know, and so you have to have a lot of it on the plate. So that's one thing that I'm very fascinated by. But then, you know, there's nothing like a, a really good taco. That's, you know, my my opinion about my I totally food agree food. with
0: you that's my yeah. number one favorite food tacos
2: yeah and and you can get them anywhere in every any which variety you know and so that's now they're spreading out a little bit so now you're having tacos you know in in other cuisines and they just call it taco but they put anything in that's maybe not so mexican but here in the in San Miguel de Allende the taco stands you know that I go to I I just know I'm going to get a good product. Yes, you know, and I know I'm tasty. I should say tasty. I don't know why, but there are very few restaurants that actually manage to recreate the same taste that tacos have on taco stands. You know, Mm -hmm. there's something about the big griddle and everything that things get prepared on that gives you that extra flavor, and and I just I just love it, you know.
0: Now, talking about restaurants, how how has the culinary scene grown in San Miguel de Allende? What what can you tell us about this growth of of different restaurants in San Miguel de Allende?
2: Well, my first exposure to a a different way of serving Mexican food, like we would say more upscale or more nouvelle, was first uh, eating at uh, at Pujol in Mexico City about 15 years ago with Enrico Rivera, he kind of, you know, started deconstructing like your your different um, corn dishes and things like esquitas, you know, he deconstructed and served it in a glass, layer and everything. And it started sort of a whole trend and it's sort of taken over a little bit. And in the end, you don't know exactly what it is that you're eating because it's so artfully piled on with tweezers and everything. And I can't really say I'm in love with that. And what I find is a lot of chefs, they, they need more of a basic knowledge of food. You know, like in France, when you are call me in a me in a restaurant, I mean, it, it can be that for weeks you're doing nothing but peeling potatoes. And, and I think that sort of installs some knowledge in you about the products. And then eventually you can start branching out and creating your own dishes. And, um, you know, at one time I was a potter. I've had several professions in my life. I was a potter. And it it takes a lot of skill and a lot of practice to make just a straight pot, you know, on, on the wheel. And then, but once you've mastered that, then you can start making different shapes, you know because you know what the basic structure is supposed to be like, how much it can take in the weight and everything and I think that is sort of missing for a lot of young chefs in the Mexican cuisine they they don't quite know where the food will go if they do certain things to it and a lot of times it can be excellent but there's also a lot of misses where where it just doesn't turn out the way they thought it would and yet they're trying to Tell you that this is the way it is. You know, I've had bad food in some restaurants, and when I said something about it, it was like, "Well, that's how we prepare it." Okay, all right. So they're very defensive about it, and I I find um, that's lacking. You know, and and um, and I was at a Mole festival in Puebla, and there were a lot of culinary students there, and they were very outspoken about. Uh, their training and they, they said to, you know, one of the instructors, they said, you know, why don't you teach us more about basic real good Mexican food instead of making us make bechamel and all this, you know, and I thought that was so uh, smart and, and also that they wanted to know the good basics rather than some French, you know, sauces. Combinations, yes. Yeah, now, yeah.
0: I have a tricky question for you. Since we're in San Miguel, where would you send someone, you know, I'm talking about uh, a location, to have Mexican food? Is there any place that you can say, you know, this is a good reference for Mexican food?
2: Yeah, right. Well, of course, I always feel comfortable sending people to the taco stand. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I have to tell you, I had a, I had a, a, a couple that took classes for me. And the wife had been living in Mexico for 40 years, and she was basically exporting um, art. And eventually one day I said, you know, like, it's something about a taco stand. And she looked at me and she said, well, all this time that we've been in Mexico, we have never got,
0: gone to a taco in stand. 40 years?
2: Yes. And I kind of looked at her and I, so I explained to her, I said, you know, you go to a restaurant and you don't know where the food has been. You know, it's back there in the kitchen. It can be three days old. It can be fresh from yesterday. And, and you don't know. I said, if you go to a taco stand, you see the cook in front of you preparing the food, putting it on the plate, and handing it to you it's not traveling anywhere it's just very immediate I said now what can go wrong here you know and so so they gave it a try and you know what every time they see me now oh we just had some visitors and we took them immediately to the taco stands they're <laughs> totally they're totally hooked on the taco stands so it's there's that fear and I tell that to my students in class I said look and I used my table as a demonstration. I said, you know, one side, you watch this person or this cook prepare everything, and then they hand it to you. There's no waiter running around. There's, you know, like, it's so immediate that it couldn't get any fresher and any more delicious. So that's my, my uh, recommendation number one, you know. And then I like to tell people, you know, to uh, like Guadalupe and I just the other night went to the Alborada. And they have a really nice prosola, and I've been eating prosola there for the last 14 years. And it's consistent, you know, this is something you need to look for when you go out to eat here is consistency. And, um, you know, sometimes the chef changes and then they want to do it different or better. So you have to find certain restaurants where you feel if you go there and you order something, you get what you order. You know what it is that you get. And at La Alborada, that's exactly what happens. I order my pozole and here it comes. You always know what you're gonna get. Yes, it tastes. And my stomach is already waiting for it, you know? (laughs) So I don't want to be disappointed. I don't want to be disappointed. And so uh, 14 years ago, um, a person took me there and said, this is the best pozole in town. And I've been going there ever since. And it's still really good. still no
0: disappointment.
2: No, no disappointment. And you know, when your stomach is already sitting and waiting for something that you know how it tastes, it's kind of, you don't want to disappoint it, you know.
0: I agree with you. I will never, I have to tell you, I would never thought about that, you know, the analysis that you just made about the taco stand. It couldn't be fresher. You're seeing what they're cooking for you right in front of your eyes. And they hand it to you and that's it. Very simple. That's it. I think that's probably why I love it so much.
2: Yeah, and you know, I love the way they hand it to you, you know, with with two hands and they reach it over the counter and they hand it to you. It's such a symbolic gesture. With pride, you know. That's totally it. I mean, I have a couple of pictures where I catch that moment where they're handing you this plate with two hands and a smile, you know, and, and... that's just so proud of what they've just produced and I think half of a good meal is really if it's prepared with pride
0: you know totally agree with you well Kirsten it's been a fascinating conversation I definitely believe that we're gonna have to continue with a second episode of this I have some more questions so many of them Related to Mexican food, but also connected to history, because I think sometimes we forget how are we so connected and the evolution of history combined with the food. What are the dishes that have been changing our lives or even our countries? So we'll have to definitely do this uh, conversation again. But in the meantime, I want to thank you.
2: I'll be anytime. I'll be anytime. I love it. I love it because this is one of my main goals when I'm teaching is to enlighten people about how wonderful this cuisine really is, you know, and, and, um, I think I succeed at times judging by the feedback that I
0: get. And just to connect that, let's just, uh, go back to La Piña Azul. At this moment, are you taking any, uh, uh, students, any people that want to visit or have a, a private, uh, cooking lesson?
2: I, they, I have certain regulations that I would like to keep in place. I'm not officially open-open, um, but I, I will accept students and um, they can get information from me what it requires, you know, the amount of time in advance that I take and the, and the safety, you know, uh, precautions that we need to take these days. And if those are all in place, then yes, I can give classes. I prefer if it's very small, maybe couples or, or, you know, mother and daughter or something like that, because I think that's that's safer. I I like to stay on the safe side. You know, I used to have up to 12 students in my class and I definitely can't do that anymore.
0: Now, things have changed, but I'm sure some people would like to learn more about this. So we'll have all your contact information and your website. So whoever wants to uh, learn more about this. For sure they can easily contact you through your website. So as for now, thank you so much again. And I look forward for the next conversation with you. Okay.
2: Well, I I got lots of material, so you're welcome to come back.
0: And thank you for this private class for me, <laughs> because I learned a lot. Different things that I would never occur to me. You
2: know, this is yeah. This is the one thing that I actually enjoy most if I can actually enlighten some native people about their own cuisine, you know, which is um, very rewarding for me if I can get them excited about something like the pitaya, you
0: know. The dragon fruit that is a Mexican pitaya. Okay, well, thank you so much for listening to this conversation. If you enjoy it and would like to hear more, check out the link on the podcast description. If you want to learn more about our cast, find their information below. My name is José Antonio Quero and this is The Premier Journal.
1: Special thanks to Maru Garrido, Production. Wally Wilson, Musical Production. Lorenzo Molina, Musician. Maritere Dobarganes, Introduction, Voice Over. Sponsor... Premier San Miguel, the key to exclusiveness.